Imagine that things are going really great. You're doing what you love for a living. You're really good at it, and you're beginning to make a name for yourself. In fact, the future looks bright, except for one problem. You have a secret, a secret that's getting harder and harder to hide, a secret that perhaps, if it gets out, could ruin everything. What would you do? This is the situation in which Beethoven found himself in the summer of 1802, as he was writing his second symphony. I am Carlos Botero, and I'm Sinjin Flynn, and this is the Houston Symphonies on the music. In this episode, we'll discuss Beethoven's Symphony Number、no. Two, a piece of music that seems cheerful on the surface, but was written just as Beethoven realized that he was losing his sense of hearing. For Beethoven, everything was on the line. In 1802, things were looking good for Beethoven. He was 31 years old, and since he had arrived in Vienna nearly 10 years earlier, he had established himself as one of the city's best pianists and composers. Vienna was the capital of the sprawling Habsburg Empire and home of numerous musicians, composers, and wealthy music-loving aristocrats. At the time, the two foremost names of the Viennese music scene were Mozart and Haydn. Mozart had died just before Beethoven moved to Vienna, but his music was perhaps now even more popular than it had been during his lifetime. Haydn had recently retired from a long and prolific career, capped by his 12 London symphonies and two grand works for soloists, chorus, and orchestra: *The Creation* and *The Seasons*. With Mozart and Haydn no longer creating new works, Vienna's music lovers and connoisseurs. We're eager to find a new talent that could measure up. If you wanted to make a name for yourself in music, this was the time to do it. This was the city to do it. Beethoven was very quick to seize this opportunity. During his first ten years in Vienna, he turned out dozens of works that included string quartets, piano sonatas, concertos,、uh, songs for voice and piano. And also his first symphony. His music was very widely performed, and he very quickly won over Vienna's music connoisseurs. Prince Karl Lichnowsky, who had been an important patron and supporter of both Mozart and Haydn, even went so far as to give Beethoven a generous stipend and room and board in his palace. Beethoven, however, was no Mozart or Haydn. While securing aristocratic patronage was essential to having a successful musical career in Vienna, Beethoven was never comfortable with the master-servant relationship such arrangements implied. A true child of the Enlightenment, Beethoven could never stand to be treated as anyone's inferior. Unlike musicians of the previous generation, Beethoven often rebelled against aristocratic notions of superiority by getting into arguments and even refusing to play his music, no matter how many of Vienna's nobles begged to hear it. Why did Vienna's princes and princesses put up with Beethoven's infamously irascible temper? The most important reason was that his music was just that good. During his first decade in Vienna, Beethoven understandably was eager to show that he had mastered the musical style of Mozart and Haydn, 
and his works of this period were often strongly influenced by these acknowledged masters. Even in these early works, though, were traces of something new, something uniquely Beethoven. His music was full of surprises. His melodies were simpler, bolder, and perhaps less ornamented. And he began to explore the darker side of human emotions more frequently, especially in works written in that famous key, the key of C minor. Beethoven's student Karl Czerny reported, in whatever company he might chance to be, he knew how to produce such an effect upon every hearer that frequently not an eye remained dry, while many would break into loud sobs. For there was something wonderful in his expression in addition to the beauty and originality of his ideas and his spirited style of rendering them. After ending an improvisation of this kind, he would burst into loud laughter and banter his hearers on the emotion he had caused in them. You are fools, he would say. Who can live among such spoiled children? Some listeners were puzzled by the bizarre qualities of Beethoven's more experimental works. But increasingly, a group of musical connoisseurs was becoming entranced, perhaps even addicted to them. Therefore, all of Beethoven's dreams seemed to be coming true. He was performing and composing for an audience of devoted fans who believed in him and understood his music. He was increasingly recognised by musical connoisseurs as the true heir to Mozart and Haydn, and he was making plenty of money doing it. But, beginning perhaps as early as 1796, Beethoven began to notice that something wasn't quite right. According to biographer Maynard Solomon, he experienced intermittent symptoms of tinnitus, such as humming, ringing, buzzing, and other discordant sounds in the ears. There was partial loss of his ability to distinguish high frequencies, and sudden loud noises caused discomfort and even pain. He also began missing words in conversation. He even wrote to a friend, quote, As for the spoken voice, it is surprising that some people have never noticed my deafness. But since I have always been liable to fits of absent-mindedness, they attribute my hardness of hearing to that. In another letter he wrote, If I approach near to people, a hot terror seizes upon me, and I fear being exposed to the danger that my condition might be noticed. By 1802, Beethoven was becoming desperate. He began to seek out medical advice, going from one doctor to another, many of whom prescribed cures such as putting almond oil in his ears, cold water baths, pills, and other infusions, none of which seemed to help. Eventually, he found Dr. Johann Adam Schmidt, a man whose kindly nature helped calm Beethoven, even if the cure of Beethoven's hearing loss remained outside the reach of early 19th century medicine. That summer, Dr. Schmidt advised Beethoven to rest his ears at Heiligenstadt, a small town just outside of Vienna. It was there that Beethoven completed his second symphony as he wondered about his future. So what would you expect the music that Beethoven wrote at Heiligenstadt to sound like? Something dark and foreboding, perhaps? A confessional outpouring of Beethoven's worst fears? Maybe something like this? (laughs) 
Many commentators over the centuries have remarked on the surprisingly upbeat and even comical character of the symphony, given its coincidence with this crisis in Beethoven's life. Writing in the late 19th century, Sir George Grove noted that, on the contrary, there is not a single desponding bar in the whole work. How could Beethoven have written such music at this trying time? Well, in the first place, it's important to recognize that the idea of music as self-expression was not really around at this time. In 1802, no one expected music to convey the inner psyche of the composer who wrote it. They simply expected it to delight the ears and perhaps tug at their heartstrings. While it's true that in his more private solo piano works, Beethoven had already begun to change audiences' expectations, it was really his later works that would bring about a revolution in how we interpret music as an expression of a composer's inner life. If anything, Beethoven would have wanted to hide his inner turmoil from the public. In letters, he repeatedly expressed his fear that his hearing loss would prevent him from saying all he had to say in music, that his career would be cut short before he could reach his full potential. His first symphony had closely followed the models of Haydn and Mozart. In his second symphony, he wanted to truly make the symphony his own, to show Vienna what he could really do, and he wanted to incorporate many of the new characteristics of his style that were appearing already in his music. By the time Beethoven began writing his symphonies, composers like Mozart and Haydn had established that the first movement of a symphony should unfold almost like a story. After a short introduction, it should have an exposition in which the main melodies and ideas are introduced, a development full of rising action leading to a climax, and a recapitulation in which the tension is resolved. This structure can be as varied and flexible as the structure of a novel. Beethoven follows it in all of his symphonies, but makes it increasingly personal with each symphony he composes. In his second symphony, we begin to see him stepping out of the shadow of Mozart and Haydn's influence, adding new ideas of his own. The symphony begins with a slow introduction, if you like, a sort of prologue. Haydn and Mozart both wrote symphonies with slow introductions, but Beethoven's is longer and more complex than usual. This introduction also expresses an unusual emotional depth. The harmonies wander from the safe and secure opening in D major to a powerful statement in D minor. This sonority of major contrasted with minor often right next to each other returns again and again throughout this movement and gives it a wild and unstable energy if you like. The music winds its way back to D major leading to the first theme. This idea might seem simple, but it is full of potential. Beethoven carefully crafted his melodic idea 
to give it an irresistible forward momentum. Unlike Mozart, who sometimes had entire works appear all at once in his head fully formed, Beethoven had to work hard to get his music to sound the way he wanted it, and he left behind numerous sketches that reveal how he composed many of his works. The first version of this theme went like this. It basically outlines a D major triad, the three notes that make up a D major chord. While this successfully gets us back to the home key of D major, Beethoven ultimately discarded it, probably because it's too simple. If anything, it sounds like a military bugle call. The final version still outlines the D major triad. But he adds in these little turns. Listen to the rhythm of this melody. Beethoven is imitating the rhythm of a drum roll, but with the orchestral instruments rather than military ones. That little turn propels the music forward into the next bar, making this little idea catchy and distinctive. As a final touch, Beethoven also makes an unconventional choice in giving this theme to the cellos and violas, instruments that rarely played such a prominent role in the symphonies of Haydn and Mozart. Most importantly, though, is that this theme is flexible. Listen to what Beethoven does with it. The music becomes more tumultuous, changing key, juxtaposing major with minor. Tension increases as the music changes key, settling into a new theme in A major. This new march-like theme sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? In fact, it is simply an expanded version of the first theme. Compare the simplified version of the first theme to the new theme back-to-back. The new version starts lower and has a few extra notes thrown in, but the shape is the same. Creating new melodies from old ones is part of what makes this music so coherent and powerful, and Beethoven was really good at it. To contrast with the first theme, he gives this little march to the woodwinds and has some fun contrasting soft and loud. The music that closes the exposition is full of explosive accents and surprises.
you hear how the music kept switching back and forth from major to minor? Yes, and those accents were all over the place. These are some of the aspects of Beethoven's style that some listeners found strange and bizarre. But they are what give this music its irresistible energy and vitality. I definitely hear that, Carlos, but I have a question. Bugle calls, drum rolls, marches, explosions. Are we going off to war? That's an excellent question. In 1802, Europe was at peace, but only momentarily. After the French Revolution broke out in 1789, Europe had been embroiled in war as pretty much every other country tried to invade France and stop the revolution. Needless to say, they were not successful. In 1794, French armies captured Bonn, Beethoven's hometown, and Austria, where Beethoven now lived, was defeated and compelled to sign a treaty with France in 1801. Britain continued to fight France until signing a treaty in 1802, but war broke out again in 1803. In Vienna, Beethoven would have heard the sounds of bugles, drums and marches passing by in the streets, and war was never far from people's minds. A number of commentators have noted the military character of this movement. The French composer Hector Berlioz, for example, remarked on its warlike sallies, as he called it. We can't know for sure why Beethoven wrote this music this way. Perhaps he was simply absorbing and reflecting the sounds of the world around him. Many believe, though, that the military character of many of Beethoven's pieces is perhaps a metaphor for the struggles that Beethoven faced in his own life, especially his struggle with his hearing loss. Whatever the reason for it, this is the music that raises your pulse, that gets your adrenaline going, and you can hear this sense of struggle in the rising action of the development section. In the development, the themes introduced are fragmented and transformed as the harmonies become increasingly unstable. In the recapitulation, the melodies return. But this time, the march appears in the home key of D major. Beethoven saves the real fireworks for the coda, or tail, of the movement. The music rises and rises until the trumpets reach an exultant climax. The movement appears to end in a blaze of glory, firmly in D major. Beethoven provides that perfect tonic in the next movement, a slow and utterly beautiful larghetto.
noted for its elegant, indolent beauty. This movement has been described as nostalgic, idyllic, and lovely. After the disarming opening, we hear an operatic duet between double clarinets and bassoons and violins. And a gentle second theme as well. Beethoven being Beethoven though, this movement is not merely a succession of beautiful melodies. It also has a fully worked out development, which reaches a surprisingly emotional intensity. The movement concludes, however, with relaxed serenity. This leisurely movement was perhaps the longest symphonic movement written by that time, but to paraphrase George Grove, who ever wished it curtailed? Though Beethoven is known for his stormy moods and most often pictured with furrowed brow, he was also capable of writing music of great purity and serenity. In this movement too, he is finding his own voice. third movement, Beethoven casts tradition aside by writing a scherzo instead of a minuet. The minuet was originally a stately Baroque dance, as we can hear in this famous example, which Bach transcribed in a collection of pieces for his wife. Over the course of the 18th century, the minuet became the most popular ballroom dance, and composers like Haydn and Mozart often included minuets in their multi-movement works. In a set of string quartets, however, Haydn replaced the minuets with scherzos. The word scherzo is the Italian word for joke, and in contrast with the graceful and stately minuets, Haydn wrote music that was rhythmically unpredictable, full of surprises and full of musical jokes. Until Beethoven, however, no one had included a scherzo in a symphony. In this movement, Beethoven composed a scherzo full of musical jokes, much rougher and less polished than Haydn's witticisms. <laughs> Everything is unpredictable. As soon as you think you hear a pattern, Beethoven subverts it. 
There are surprises of soft and loud, unexpected accents and sudden harmonic changes that would have sounded strange to many of Beethoven's contemporaries. The finale, however, is perhaps the most bizarre. Full of musical hiccups and loud guffaws, this movement proceeds at breakneck speed, displaying Beethoven's rather broad musical sense of humour as every trace of 18th century decorum is thrown out of the window. One contemporary critic even infamously described this symphony as a hideously writhing, wounded dragon that refuses to die, but writhing in its last agonies and, in the fourth movement, bleeding to death. The symphony ends in uproarious laughter in a final race to the punchline. While composing this symphony that summer in Heiligenstadt, Beethoven penned another famous statement, although this one was not a musical one. He wrote a letter to his two younger brothers, a letter that he never sent, and it's known today to scholars as the Heiligenstadt Testament. In it, Beethoven revealed the true feelings that he was wrestling with that summer. Confessing his encroaching hearing loss and isolation, he explained his distress. By ordering me to spare my hearing as much as possible, my intelligent doctor almost fell in with my own frame of mind, though sometimes I ran counter to it by yielding to my desire for companionship. But what a humiliation for me when someone standing next to me heard a flute in the distance and I heard nothing. Or someone heard a shepherd singing and again I heard nothing. Such incidents drove me almost to despair. A little more of that and I will have ended my life. It was only my art that held me back. Ah, it seemed impossible to leave the world until I had brought forth all that I felt was within me. 
Amidst these thoughts of suicide, Beethoven resolved to continue on for the sake of his musical vision. Under these circumstances, his second symphony seems all the more remarkable, a mighty smile in the middle of despair. Beethoven had to wait until April of 1803 for the premiere of his second symphony at a mammoth all-Beethoven concert that also featured his first symphony, his third piano concerto, and his hastily completed oratorio Christ on the Mount of Olives. On top of that, Beethoven's new symphony may have been the longest ever written to that date. Due to time constraints, rehearsals did not begin until 8 a.m. the morning of the concert and continue in a dreadful ordeal until just before the concert began at 6 p.m. Apparently, the musicians managed to learn Beethoven's new and sometimes tricky music well enough that no one noticed any egregious mistakes. Reviews, nevertheless, were mixed. The Zeitung für die Elegante Welt, while generally positive, preferred Beethoven's more traditional first symphony, which was, quote, developed with a lightness and less forced, while in the second, the striving for the new and surprising is already more apparent. These new and surprising effects were for others, however, the best part. Upon the publication of the symphony in 1804, the Musikalische Zeitung, or General Musical Newspaper, declared the symphony a noteworthy, colossal work of a depth power and artistic knowledge like very few. It demands to be played again and yet again by even the most accomplished orchestra until the astonishing number of original and sometimes very strangely arranged ideas become closely enough connected, rounded out and emerge like a great unity. More and more, especially among connoisseurs, Beethoven's strangely arranged ideas were being recognized as something new and even revolutionary. After the premiere of the Second Symphony, the Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung wrote that Beethoven can in time effect a revolution in music. He is hastening toward this goal with great strides. Vienna would not have long to wait. The revolution would come in Beethoven's next symphony, the Eroica. On the Music is a co-production of the Houston Symphony and Houston Public Media. For more episodes and a complete list of credits, visit houstonsymphony.org slash onthemusic. Please send your questions, comments and feedback to onthemusic at houstonsymphony.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>